Brass First Point Guard and Blazer Beat Writer Mike Richmond, and you're listening to another episode of Locked On Blazers, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, available wherever you get podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Built Bar. Built Bar is a protein bar that tastes like a candy bar. Go to BuiltBar.com and use the promo code LOCKEDON, and you'll get $10 off your first order. Today's episode is also another edition of Mailbag Monday, answering listener-submitted questions all episode long. If you want to get involved in Mailbag Monday, you probably already know how to do it, but in case you don't, because every Lockdown Blazers is someone's first Lockdown Blazers, here's how you do it. Tweet at me, at Mike G. Rich on Twitter. You can just, whenever you're thinking of a question, send it my way on Twitter. Or wait for Monday mornings around 9 a.m. Pacific time. I send out a tweet soliciting your questions, and I'll answer them on the show. Pretty much every question that gets asked, I answer on the show. But if you're not someone who uses Twitter, there's another way to do it. You can email the show. Locked on Blazers pod. That's locked on Blazers pod at gmail.com. Those are the two ways to get involved. I love I love Mailbag Monday. I hope you do too. So if you want to be a part of it by asking a question, that's how you get involved. All right, let's let's get into it. Let's do the dang thing. This first question of the day comes from Tam Terrius at Tam 53376362. Tam, you asked several questions and I appreciate you, but I do not care for all the numbers in this Twitter handle. But here's your first question. Is Terry Stotts a top three coach in Blazers history? Yes. Yes. Uh, I think he's third right now. I think he's third. Um, he's not Jack Ramsey the greatest coach in, in the history of, of the franchise. I, it's hard for me to see. I mean, if they win the championship, we'll talk. But uh, hard for me to see Terry Ketchin Jack. Um, you know, the guy who ushered in the that championship era, kind of changed um, changed the perception of the franchise and, and ushered them into being a really successful team. Basically um, adopted them from their infancy and, and, and turned them into a really successful team. Uh Adelman is the next guy. Rick Adelman, the coach of those uh, early '90s teams that made the finals. Adelman is, um, you know, was a long, long, long time NBA head coach. Uh, really successful here. You know, was the head man of some of the best single seasons in the history of the franchise. And then after that, I think it's, I think it's Terry. With all due respect to Mike Dunleavy and Nate McMillan, um, I think the tripped to the Western Conference Finals. I think that just the the consistent success and winning, how many times they've made the playoffs in a row. This year might have put a little uh, dark mark on Terry's record, but basically he inherited a team that wasn't very good and got Damian Lillard. And from that point forward, they were consistently successful. Now they have had some underwhelming moments and some bad moments in the playoffs, but I think overall Terry's body of work and where he ranks on the franchise's all-time wins list Makes him a third greatest coach in Blazers history. He is top three because he's third. Okay, next question comes from Cannon, who sent this in from Gmail. Cannon asks, with the whispers of basketball maybe returning in some fashion this summer, what do you think the chances are that the Blazers will be in the playoffs? Whether they play a few more regular season games, include some lower season playoffs, or some other solution? So I don't think they're going to expand the playoffs. That seems unlikely to me. I think the solution is probably they go with the current standings are now and they say these are the eight teams that deserve to get in each conference. Everybody played 60 games. If you weren't in the top eight in the first 60 games, tough. 
or, and Dan Wojcicki of the LA Times reported this week that the NBA still is considering coming back and playing regular season games. They have not crossed that off the list. In fact, there is uh, at least part of the league that's very into that because of the income related to playing games. Teams, the non-playoff teams want a slice of the pie because they've been losing money and these are people who like making money. They're billionaires. So I I think it's, I kind of think it's one or the other. I think it's, they play regular season games or they jump right into the playoffs. I don't think there's a, I, well, I'd like to see some creative solution. I think it's unlikely just because of the time. And I think time is the biggest factor here. The deeper we get into the summer, the less likely it is that you can play regular season games. And it starts to just look like, let's play some kind of postseason. Let's crown a champion. Let's not have this question mark. Let's not have the 1920 season be a question mark. So if I had to guess, I'm going to say that the league does not play regular season games and the Blazers do not make the playoffs. Even if they do play, if unless they were to, unless the Blazers were to get the full slate and they were going to get they were going to still have two shots of the Grizzlies uh, for the rest of the season and or to close out the regular season, I think if they'd won both those games, they'd have a very very good chance of making the playoffs. But unless the Blazers get the full slate, like if you if they only get five games, they're not going to catch the Grizzlies in five games. So I think I think it's I would say that the chances the Blazers make the playoffs are slim. One, they might not get a chance, and two, they might get a really really sort of like you got to win five you got to win all five of your regular season games and the Grizzlies got to win all five of theirs. If there's like a single elimination tournament though, that would be super fun and I think it would maybe slightly raise the Blazers chances, maybe keep them at the same same level as slim. But I'm not hopeful that that this uh that this season ends with the Blazers playing postseason games. It seems unlikely to me. Okay, next question comes from Pishon, Chaz, Chaz Swag, Big G, George at George Allen 25 on Twitter who asks, little punny, but what really does lock it down defense look like in this NBA era? In other words, what does good defense look like? Yeah, um, I think this is a fair question. I think it's something that particularly people who aren't league obsessed, such as myself, struggle with because the scoring is high. Um, there's not as, you know, there's a lot of high scoring games. Uh, there seems to, the freedom of movement rules make it such that you can't really put your hands on guys the way sort of like traditional defense looks like where you, where you, you know, are grabbing someone. There's not as many hard fouls. So you don't get that sort of like cliche playoff defense, playoff foul type of thing. But, and, and I think it's further complicated by, um, team's general preference to shoot threes. So while teams do it in a bunch of different ways, they're generating looks from further away. And uh, when you generate a lot of threes or, or are committed to taking a lot of threes, you can get open, you can get more open looks just because of more space. Um, in fact, the best defense in the NBA this season, the Milwaukee Bucks, was a team that surrendered a ton of three-pointers. Now, generally speaking, I think in this era, a good measurement of good of defense is three-point attempts, limiting three-point attempts. That's chasing guys off the line, making, making teams take shots they don't want to take. But the league is headed in a direction where teams only want to take threes and layups. So that's easier said than done, for sure. And the Bucks. Um, while they had the best defense in the league this year, were a team that gave up a ton of three-pointers. 
In fact, the Bucks gave up the third highest three-point rate in the league, or, or gave up a three-point attempt that the third most frequent of any team in the league. So giving up a ton of threes maybe isn't a good mark of defense, further complicating the question, what does good defense look like? So I think a couple things. One, good defense looks like the Bucks because they defend the rim really well. They make it hard for you to get into the paint. When you get into the paint, you meet a lot of resistance. Um, the other thing that it that I think is a good judgment of of good defenses is maybe a little something that's a little harder to see, but it's it's who takes the shots. The Bucks, well, they give up a ton of threes. If you watch them, it's not like they're just letting um, you know Luka Doncic or James Harden or uh, Pascal Siakam come down and get to their spots and do what they do. They swarm and use their athleticism to push guys to a certain spot and then try to recover. And because they do that. And, and mostly, and they don't, they kind of double team in spots. They mostly just play straight up. They give up some threes, but they protect the rim really well and not giving up dunks and layups and making it hard to get shots right at the rim is probably the best mark of lockdown defense. You're not going to see teams hold guys into the 80s and pace of play might push even for good defensive teams scores up into the 115, one, you know, 120 range. But I think the best defenses in the league in general take away, like lockdown defense, what it looks like is they take away what stars want to do and they defend the rim. I think that's the mark of the best defense in the league. All right, in the second segment, we're going to answer more of your questions. But before we do that, I want to tell you more about Built Bar. Built Bar is a protein bar that tastes like a candy bar. Sounds pretty good. 16 amazing flavors, all of them covered in 100% chocolate. There's eight chocolate and nut options. There's eight ch- just straight up chocolate options with no nuts. Built Bars have a great texture. I was eating one earlier today. Soft and chewy. And like I said, tastes like a candy bar, but it has the benefits of a protein bar. It's great for the health conscious among us. It's also a great way to cut down on unwanted or unhealthy calories while still indulging in a delicious treat. The bars are low calorie, they're low sugar, but they're still high in protein, high in fiber. They got flavors like peanut butter brownie, one that I was snacking on earlier today. And with peanut butter brownie, you're getting a bar that's got 20 grams of protein, 170 calories, 3 grams of sugar, and 3 grams of net carbs. Tastes great, good for you. It's a great indulgent little snack if you're stuck at home and constantly looking in the pantry for something to munch on. So if you want to get involved, here's what you do. Go to BuiltBar.com and use the promo code LOCKEDON and you'll get $10 off your first order. That's $10 off your first order when you use LOCKEDON, L-O-C-K-E-D-O-N, at BuiltBar.com. All right. Still Mailbag Monday. Let's keep it rolling with more of your questions. This next one comes from Matthew at Reverend Romulus on Twitter who asks... What are your two favorite sports memories? One from childhood and one as an adult. Okay, I'm going to give you two from childhood because uh, I, I realized I had two. Okay, my favorite sporting event I've ever attended was in March of 2005 at the Dean E. Smith Center in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. The North Carolina Tar Heels were down 11 with a minute 34 remaining to Duke. Hated rival Duke. Uh, J.J. Redick was on that team. You may recall him from being a truly hateable college figure. But uh, this Carolina team was one of my favorites of all time. Raymond Felton, 
uh, Sean May, Rashad McCants, Jackie Manuel, David Noel, uh, Marvin Williams. But, okay, this great moment starts. Uh, Duke has the ball under a minute to go and, and has a lead, can ice it basically with a bucket. David Noel slaps the ball away. Uh, David Noel briefly played in the NBA uh, for the Bucks. He currently works for the Washington Wizards G League affiliate, the Washington Go-Go. But that's neither here nor there. That's just some nice trivia for you. But so he slaps the ball away. Uh, the Tar Heels kind of grab it at midcourt, call a timeout. They run a, a high pick and roll with May and Felton. Felton gets into the lane, gets fouled, hits the first free throw, misses the second one. Marvin Williams grabs the rebound in a crowd, goes back up, scores and is fouled and won. Four-point possession. Carolina takes the lead with, you know, under four seconds remaining. Duke misses a desperation shot at the buzzer. It's my favorite sporting event I've ever attended. Absolutely. Absolutely. I I still occasionally watch the replay on YouTube, which has the radio call. Um, Incredible. Uh, Truly, probably, like, number one, my favorite sporting event from my childhood. Probably my favorite sporting event in my life, um, to be quite honest. But the other one that comes up is... Uh, my father grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. His parents lived there uh, for, his mom lived there for uh, basically my entire life. Um, but, so we would go to Pittsburgh all the time and we would we would go to Steeler games very seldomly. I think I went to like four in 25 years um, when we were still going there very regularly. Uh, and one of the, the first ones we went to, maybe the second one, we, or the first real regular season game we went to, it was the final game of the year. The Steelers were eliminated from the playoffs. We sat in the literal last seats of the stadium, like backs against the wall of the stadium in the end zone. And they're playing the Ravens. We're sitting like in the away crowd section. And um, this is this could be a much longer story. I could probably do 20 minutes on this game. But it, the Ravens, you know, people are harassing Ravens fans. And there's, um, there's just like a lot of, I was like a young teen. And there's just a lot of sort of like drunk football fans was my first real um, exposure to that. Uh, but the game ends when Joe Flacco throws an interception. Um, it was totally meaningless for the Steelers, but I believe it kept the Ravens out of the playoffs. And uh, they the the Steelers get an interception, the final play of the game, and I'm jumping up and down, and I'm hugging strangers. Um, and it was like, you know, you're in the literal worst seats in the building. I was there with my, my dad and my sister. And it's just an incredible, incredible sporting experience for something that you thought you... Um, not that I didn't think I'd care about it. I love the team at the time. Shout out to Tommy Maddox. But, um, you know, a game that was otherwise meaningless. It was just sort of the magic of rivalries in sports really distilled. Um, my favorite memory as an adult. Uh, you know, my, one of my favorite games to cover as an adult was the Point Nine game. Uh, I had, I was not like really on the Blazers beat then. Uh, I would, I, I had started over the, the last maybe like 15 months. Basically, I would help out at Blazer games when they needed extra hands. Uh, I worked at the Oregonian and they would, I would just do little like locker room interviews, uh, videos from the opposing locker room. I, I just like helped out here and there. I wasn't writing um, the big feature or anything. I was just like ancillary support staff. And but during the playoffs, it was all hands on deck, and I was one who I, that was when I started to travel with the team and and um, and things like that, or, or follow the team on the road, I should say. And um, you know, I I just been to Houston. It's my first, uh, maybe my first real road trip. Yeah, I think it was my first. That was my coming off my first road game in the NBA was Game Five. Uh, and so it's you know it's Game Six, and I'm kind of like 
I'm new new to the beat, and all of a sudden, I'm I'm kind of realizing that either the Blazers are going to lose, and I'm going to travel back and watch a Game 7 um, on the road, which I was very excited about, or we're going to see a, a something really exciting. And I'm sitting in the auxiliary media section, which is the end zone, um, kind of uh, where the away bench is. That end zone is where auxiliary media sits in the playoffs. Uh, and... I had just a perfect view of Dame lining that shot up and shooting it. And what I really remember about it was like the, the stadium going nuts and him lingering, him just hanging around. Um, he, he didn't leave the court, you know, he grabbed the microphone and yelled rip city. He like, he, the, nobody left in the stands and he didn't, he didn't leave either. He kind of basked in it a little bit because he, if nothing else has an incredible understanding and incredible grasp on these big moments. Like Dame has a real flair for the theatrics, a real taste for it. So he totally understood in that, uh, in that exact moment, what was happening. So I think that was my favorite as an adult. It was a little different cause I was working, but I enjoyed that more than the, uh, than the wave bad shot because I was, I had covered, you know, 300 NBA games by the time we got to that game against OKC. And I, it, it wasn't as special for me. The shine wears off. That's the sad part about being around the team. Wah, wah, wah. Uh, still love the NBA, but um, it's, it, it changes. Okay. Next question. Also, Matthew, thank you for allowing me to, uh, you know, get deep into nostalgia and reminisce about childhood sports memories. Thanks for the question. I appreciate you. This next question comes from Lewis Olenek at Lewis R.S. Olenek on Twitter, who asks, Last week you mentioned a coin flip in 84 that gave Portland the number two draft pick instead of number one. Would an 80s, 90s Blazer team with Elijah Wan and the same core have won a title? Would history be as hard on Houston for passing on MJ as it is on Portland if they hadn't won in 94 and 95. So I'm going to do a bunch of Blazers what-ifs. Um, I don't think the NBA is coming back anytime soon, so we got a lot of downtime. Uh, and Not this week, but in future weeks. I believe starting next week, um, I'm going to roll out a bunch of sort of Blazers what-ifs. This is sort of like the lost what-if, not, not the Bowie thing, but like what if Elijah won. So I'm not going to go too, too deep here. Um I, it's coming. I promise, Lewis. I'll go deep on this at some time. But uh, right now, I just want to say I don't. I don't know if they win a championship. Man, would they have been good though with Elijah Wan in that same core? You um, you bring Kevin Duckworth, Duckworth off the bench and roll with Elijah Wan. They would have been really good. I mean, the Rockets made the uh, NBA Finals in 1986, right? Like Elijah Wan and Ralph Sampson. So he was immediately an impact player. Um, obviously him and uh, Drexler had played in college together. They had a great relationship. So the dynamic probably would have been okay. They later teamed up in Houston, um, obviously, and won those finals. So would history be as hard on Houston for passing on MJ as it is on Portland? Absolutely. Um, I think those titles in 94 and 95, um, they really changed the way people think about that Elijah one pick uh, because if both teams don't win finals, if both, you know, even if Elijah, if Elijah won is Patrick Ewing, right? He's a Hall of Famer, but not someone who wins championships. Then you still say, I can't believe they passed up on Jordan for a, for an all-time good, you know, for one of the, for one of the very, very good players of the generation. But instead you win the championship, they win the championships later, obviously one of the years when MJ was there and the second year when MJ kind of came back late in January, um, it totally changes the perception of 100, 100%. Next question comes from Hotai Kim at Hotai underscore Kim 97 on Twitter, who asks, Blazers have a top five pick in the 2020 draft. Who do they draft? Best player available or team needs? 
Um, so this is obviously a hypothetical because um, we don't know the lottery order and that's going to be delayed until the season ends or, w- or what they decide to do with the season. Obviously, they got to figure out standings before they do lottery. But in this in this hypothetical where the Blazers have a top five draft pick, who do they draft? So my instinct as someone who covers the team um, and just likes the NBA would say you draft team need, right? You draft a forward um, or you draft like a three or a four, somebody who can uh, who's maybe less of a project and more of like someone who can who can contribute right away. Uh, you try to find someone who can play next to Nurk, someone who can be a fourth starter with Dame, CJ, and Yusuf Nurkic, right? That's your best case scenario. Best case scenario, it's a three. You pencil them in next to Zach Collins. You've, you've built this core five, right, with this draft pick. Um, but I don't, like, if I, that's what I do. But I kind of think the way Neil drafts, is best player available. He says this guy's too good to pass up. Anthony Simons is too good to pass up. We're going to we're going to take him. You know, even if we have two guards, we think this we our whatever and our analytics or our 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 draft scout group says that this guy has a highest chance to be a star of anyone on the board. We are going to swing big and even though he might not help us immediately, I think Neil thought he'd help immediately. But even if he might not help immediately, at least he we are drafting someone who in year 3, 4, 5, 6, once we re-sign him is going to be a true stud. So I think the Blazers go best player available and try to make it work by by acquiring the most talent. I think NBA GM, GMs particularly in places like Portland where they're not going to get free agents tend to go best player available because you just stack the chest. You try to get as many as many gems in that chest as possible, um, and as opposed to specific team needs. Uh, so yeah, I think that's what Neil does. It's not what I would do. All right, third segment. We're going to close out the show with more of your questions on this Mailbag Monday. Still a pass first point guard. Still Mike Richmond. Still locked on Blazers, and we're still rolling with Mailbag Monday. Let's keep it going. This next question comes from Tamtarius. You may remember from me being mean about your Twitter handle at the start of the show, but Tamtarius, you asked three questions. You're getting three questions in the show. Here's number two. What do you think of Tomas Sadoransky? I think he would be a perfect fit in what Evan Turner was supposed to do off the bench at a relatively small price. I'm a huge Tomas Sadoransky fan. Um, I love his game. I think he can play one, two, or three pretty effectively. Um, I think he's super crafty in the pick and roll. I think he's decent enough to play off the ball. I think he's a competent, I don't know if he's like a good defensive player, but a competent enough defensive player that he doesn't just get absolutely killed um, on defense. And... Yeah, I'm a I'm a big Sato fan. If if the price is right, give me Tomas Sadoransky as a bench wing. He's um you know he's a Mike G. Rich favorite. Next one from Tamtarius, another personnel question. Tamtarius asks, Would you trade CJ McCollum for DeJounte Murray, Derek White, and added value? I like DeJounte Murray. I like Derek White. I don't like giving up CJ McCollum for two players who will probably never be as good as he is. Uh, DeJounte Murray is really intriguing, a good defensive point guard, but he looked, he had a down year coming off um, that torn ACL that cost him most of the previous season, basically all of the previous season. I like Derek White as a backup guard. I don't like Derek White as a backup guard on a team that features Damian Lillard, 
now all of a sudden DeJounte Murray, Anthony Simons, and Gary Trent Jr., you're just adding to the logjam. Even if he's better than Simons and Gary Trent, you you haven't solved the problem, which is that this team needs forwards. Um, I'm going to assume added value means draft picks, while I think a Spurs draft pick would be sexy because I think they're going to be bad over the next couple years. Um, I, I'm, there's not enough in it for me. Um, unless it's like unprotected immediately the following draft, then yeah, let's go for it. Uh, that trade's not for me. If it's for you, that's cool. But you heard the, what the Reverend said. That's a hell nah from your boy. Okay, next question comes from CJ at Friggin Winning on Twitter who asks, I enjoy MMA because it's an individual sport. That's mixed martial arts for those of you not hip. In 1995, Hakeem was going to play Shaquille O'Neal one-on-one for a million bucks on pay-per-view. Taco Bell helped pre-sell millions of pay-per-view buys, and Hakeem pulled out the day before the game. Who would have won? Also, what current NBA one-on-one matchup would be a pay-per-view draw? Okay, I loved those um, ads back in the day promoting that thing, um, Shaq versus Hakeem. They also led to Shaquille O'Neal having Taco Neck, one of the great um, Taco Bell NBA ads ever. Shout out to Taco Neck. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Google Taco Neck, Shaquille O'Neal. You will have your eyes opened. Um, I really liked those Rocket teams in the 90s. Uh, That was kind of my first really falling in love with the NBA was that I really loved Robert Ori and Hakeem Olajuwon on those Rockets teams. Uh, I think depending on the rules, like how many dribbles you get, um, I, I think Olajuwon wins because he, he was at that stage um, just a little quicker. Like Shaq was so nimble in 1995, like the peak near the peak of his powers. I think over the next three seasons about as good as Shaq would be, even though he didn't, he won the, MVP like five years later, 99, 2000, but he was just a freak in those, in those Orlando days in terms of just size and and agility. But depending on how many dribbles it is and Shaq can't just, if he, if he can't just pound the rock and just straight up back, uh, Elijah one in and overpower him, then I'm going to take Hakeem because I think Hakeem's craft would win out. Also, if it's make it, take it. I like, um, Hakeem with several different moves to be able to pull off, um, it pull off an arsenal against Shaq who wouldn't be ready. Whereas baby Shaq, while he had a lot of, a, a lot of different um, ways to overpower you, he was basically going to go through you. He wasn't, he hadn't fully maybe exp- developed the arsenal. Uh, and he was, what he was really good at was just being so big in the open court. Um, so I'd say Elijah on, if they played a 15 by twos and threes, he wins 15. 15-12, Shaq takes the second game, and then Elijah Juan wins 16-14, win by two, go to overtime. It's close. Uh, what's the best matchup now? I think the one that just like jumps out at me is uh, Dame versus Russ um, because of the beef. I think that's a really fun one. Um, I think Carl Anthony Towns versus Joel Embiid with the beef is pretty fun. I think... LeBron James and Giannis Antetokounmpo would be pretty fun. I think James Harden versus Chris Paul and the all-time crafty jerk thing would be pretty fun. Um, I would like to see Paul George and Kawhi Leonard teammates go at it. I think that would be pretty interesting. Uh, Zion Williamson versus Anthony Davis would be a fun one-on-one matchup. Kevin Durant versus anyone, but he's injured, so I guess he, he, it would be tough for him to do that right now. But what I'm saying is there's a lot of these that would be really good and that the NBA should bring one-on-one to the All-Star, to All-Star Weekend. Do it. 
Add some sort of competitive incentive. You can figure out how to make guys try. Horse sucks because guys don't try. It just becomes like a low-end shooting contest. One-on-one, when you're really getting embarrassed, it's fun. You, You walk into an NBA practice, guys will play ones. Not like you and I play ones where it's like check up or playing to 15, but they'll do different types of games. So it's like, hey, three dribbles from the top of the key or catch it in the post. Uh, you get two dribbles out of the post and we'll play, you know, score or stop and you get to keep going. And if you get, if you score first to five, uh, five scores, right? There's different versions of these one, like ones out of the, in various points of the court. And you will see guys do it in practice. Like you don't, they don't, the way it works when you're covering an NBA team, at least of the Blazers is you don't get to watch real practice, but you get to see after practice stuff and guys going at it in one-on-one is absolutely my favorite thing to watch in, uh, in when you get led into the practice. Evan Turner, just punking Jake Lehman over and over again in the post and telling him about it. That is just fantastic stuff. And Evan Turner and Jake Lehman aren't particularly compelling in term- for their big national audience. Imagine LeBron versus Giannis a million times in a row. Just add it again for 35 minutes of one-on-one. You would, it'd be great TV. Final question of the show. This one comes from Logan Gillis, at Logan Gillis on Twitter, who asks, Top five best pure ball handlers in recent Blazers history last 20 years or so and follow-up question two guys on those early 90s blazer teams who played key roles but would struggle in the current nba let's go with the struggle one first uh because i think uh let's end on a positive note right um i think the obvious one is duckworth he was already a little slow defensively in that era it would only be worse now with the court spread and a kajillion pick and rolls run at him all game he had pretty good touch like out to 15 17 feet i think i think duckworth could play in this era um i do think he would be a real defensive liability um the one that i i I wanted to say would be jerome kersey but i kind of think he's too good of an athlete and too good of a defender to be um to be a real liability. He was not a shooter, but he could have played power forward and kind of just, um, he'd be fine in this, in this era. Like he wouldn't struggle. Same with Buck Williams, a guy who, this is wild though. Buck Williams never attempted a three pointer in his NBA career. Zero, none. Still a guy who averaged 18 and 12 for two straight seasons in the late eighties was a three-time all-star, um, led the league in field goal percentage back-to-back seasons in 91, 92. Uh, Buck Williams is way too talented to be, to be a problem. Drexler's a star. He'd be a star in any era. Terry Porter strikes me as someone who might even be better in the modern era because he would have shot more three-pointers. Um, and he's not he's not going to get physically overmatched by by modern athletes. Like, I think, I really think Terry Porter might have been he might have his skills might have been um, more suited to the way we play now. So it, I don't think it's any of those core four. I've, I've said Cliff Robinson would be even better in this era. Dude played forever. Cliff Robinson played it was has played some of the most minutes of anyone anyone in the league. It was you know was on those I believe two thousand five two thousand four Nets teams that were in the finals. Like dude just played forever. Um, so he he'd be fine. Danny Ainge would be fine. Uh, so I, I guess if I had to like pick, I don't want to, I want to say it's Ala Abdul Nabi because I want to say it's just like, oh, big guys would be bad. Like, <laughs> you know, I think that's fair. Like Mark Bryant would stink in the league because, um, because like big guys are dinosaurs. I don't even think that's true. I think being big is always valuable in the league. Um, so I'll say Robert Pack. Robert Pack, a non-shooting point guard would struggle in the modern era.
Pack had a pretty successful career. Um, so like it's all relative, but I think his, I guess by like sort of process of elimination, um, he's, he's who I landed on. Sorry, Robert Pack. You're one of the great in-game dunkers of all time, but Logan made me pick two. And so I landed on you. Okay. That's, that's just how it, that's how it shook out. Okay. Top five best pure ball handlers in recent Blazers history. Logan puts the cutoff at last 20 years or so, which is great because Rod Strickland came back to the Blazers in that 2000 season. So Rod Strickland is on the list. I'm not going to rank them in order, but Strickland had that thing on a string. Um, He was definitely better as a ball handler in his first stint with the Blazers in the middle 90s. uh, One of the maybe the most underrated careers of that era, but he was awesome. Um, Strickland is... uh, Strickland would would be um, really fun in the modern NBA just because of his ability to get anywhere he wanted to go. Incredible float package, so like he could, um, you know, teams loading up to stop you at the rim. He would get he would get a shot off. Really creative around the rim. Really creative ball handler. Rod Strickland, number five. But I get like I'm not ranking him. Uh, the next one has got to be Damon Stoudemire. Um, you just can't be his size and be as effective as he was without a really tight handle. Um, I don't think he's really known for sort of flashy ball handling, but he's just like a really solid pure point guard. Um, so, so I think he's best pure, pure ball handler. He's, he'll come in next on the list. Then I think it has to be Damian Lillard. Um, again, I don't think he's someone who's known for being this like elite ball handler, but you can't do what he does without a tight handle. I think his handle's even tightened up significantly since he's been in the league. Um, he loves to go left and pound that rock and take a, um, take a step back going to his right. That takes a lot of strength and a lot of just ability to get that ball where you want it to be. So Damian Lillard, definitely on the list. Um, the obvious one from this current era, CJ McCollum, um, dude has a million counter dribble moves and, and then a million other dribble moves and then counters to his counters. I mean, he just, um, he loves to dribble The guy. just, he loves to pound the rock. He's kind of a low turnover guy considering how much he dribbles. It might be because he just shoots. He's not trying to pass. He's getting those shots up. Um, but yeah, I think CJ has to be on the list. So f- the fifth spot was hard for me, um, over the last 20 years. Uh, so Steve Blake was the name that came to mind. But then it was like, maybe did Jarrett Jack have a tighter handle? I kind of think Steve Blake had a, had a tighter handle than Jarrett Jack. At least that's my memory of those like 06 to 08 teams. Um, but I'm going to go with Sebastian Telfair. Um, I don't even think that's true in the NBA. But at least as a mixtape legend in high school coming out of uh, New York and Lincoln High School, he, was, he had a million uh, highlights of him. Uh, with incredible angle breaking crossovers and stuff, including one where he just absolutely sauces some dude on the, on the Rucker park court. So I'm giving it to Bassie. He's fifth Sebastian Telfair. So Strickland, Stoudemire, Dame, CJ, Bassie. Those are your top five best ball handlers in recent Blazers history. And that's your show. That's mailbag Monday folks. Appreciate you listening. Appreciate everyone who contributes to Mailbag Monday. That's whether you submit a question via at Mike G. Rich on Twitter or by emailing me lockedonblazerspod at gmail.com or if you're just someone who listens. I appreciate you just the same. Tell your friends about this podcast. They can get it wherever they already get podcasts. Just search Locked On Blazers. You'll find us there waiting for you. Appreciate you listening. Talk to you soon.